Father, we're desperate for you to meet us this morning. Spirit, would you breathe on us just as Jesus breathed on his disciples and gave them life and meaning and understanding? Would you do that for us this morning? As we interact over your word, as we try to listen to you the best we know how, would your spirit come and teach us, correct us, comfort us, be with us, transform us to look more like your son? Would you give us the ears to hear this morning, eyes to see what may be a familiar story, new things? Pray that you would do it this morning. We love you and we trust you and we ask it in your name. Amen. Well, there is a new show on Apple TV right now. I don't know if you've seen the ads for this. It's called Severance. It is a dark psychological thriller, um, and it's very slow. It's very artistic, directed by Ben Stiller. The premise of the show is interesting. Um, they have, scientists have created this surgery where they can go into your brain, and they can separate your work life from your home life. And so the eight hours you're at work, you don't remember anything from home. And the time you're at home, you don't remember anything from work. And this company has kind of developed this program that you can electively have this surgery done to your brain. And now you might be thinking, if you're hearing that concept, well, that would actually be kind of helpful. <laughs> like, I wouldn't be thinking about home when I'm at work, and I wouldn't be thinking about work when I'm at home. I'd be laser-focused on what I'm supposed to be doing. We find out at the end of the first episode that the main character decides to have the surgery because his wife has tragically died. And he's saying, like, at least I can go to a space where I won't remember her death because he is totally undone by grief and disappointment and sadness the rest of his home life. And so when he goes to work, he has no memory of his wife dying, and he just knows he's supposed to do the things he's supposed to do. Well, when you enter into this program, this company says... Here's your manual. Here's your script of what life is now supposed to be like. And it's very detailed and it's very oriented. And so when you're at work for those eight hours a day, you're just doing these things. You're following the script specifically. Well, as you can imagine, all types of things ensue where the people that are working in that company, they feel dissatisfied. They feel sad. They feel confused at what they're supposed to be doing with their life and all types of things happen. Well, speaking of scripts, my daughter, who was a freshman in high school, just finished a couple weeks ago the spring musical. She had never done anything like that before. She had a stage production class in the fall where she was building the sets with tools, and she loved it, and she had so much fun running those sets in and out of the play that she said, I think I want to try out. I want to audition. I'm a sports guy. I want to audition, not try out, for the spring musical. <laughs> And so the musical this spring was Footloose. This is a movie from the 80s, Kevin Bacon. It's a classic in my mind. If you're not familiar with the story, there's a young man named Ren McCormick who leaves the big city of Chicago and moves to this small, small town called Beaumont. And Beaumont, five years previous to him moving there, had a tragedy in their town strike. There were these kids that were drinking and they were dancing and they were partying and they were driving back. And they get into this car wreck and they all die. So the city or the town reacts to that. And so they end up banning with laws dancing and loud music and all these things. And so Ren comes into the space and is like, you can't dance. It's a law. You can't dance. This is crazy. And so he turns the whole town upside down, right? And they all dance. And it's fantastic. 
So my daughter decides that she's going to audition for this school musical, and she gets a supporting role. She's Wendy Joe, who's the friend of Ariel, and she gets a stack. It's not a stack. It's, it's, a, it's a script. It's about this thick when she comes home the first time. She's never experienced anything like this before, and she goes, okay, what's in this thing? And there's everything in that script. There's all the music in the script. There's everybody's lines. There's where you're supposed to stand in the middle of the play. Everything is laid out so you know how to best perform footloose to a live audience. And we went and saw it, and it was awesome. Now, my wife and I have been to Broadway multiple times in New York City. We've seen The Lion King. That's amazing talent-wise. This is a public high school. But it was great. These kids were just going for it. And it was so fun to watch. But leading up to the performances they had, every single day, Monday through Friday, my daughter would go to rehearsal, and she had her script, and she had her lines highlighted, and she had notes all over it, because she was trying to figure out, how do I understand what it's like to be a teenager in 1980s in Beaumont? And really live out the best version of my character. And so they would practice and they would rehearse and they would look at the script and they would run lines and they would sing and they would do dance steps, all leading up to this moment where people could enjoy what's going on in the audience. What are the scripts, whether it happens to be a script you get from your work or a script if you're in a play, what are the scripts that you are reading and rehearsing in your life? We all have a script that we're reading from. A lot of it is invisible. A lot of it comes from our family of origin. Maybe some of your script comes from your peers that you grew up with. Maybe it comes from people in the entertainment industry. And this is how this works. We grow up and we develop as humans and we try certain things. We have kind of a blank slate to some degree in our script and we try certain things and that doesn't work. And so I'm not, I'm not going to take that out of the script. And so I know what my scripts are in life to protect myself. One of the scripts for me, my parents are amazing. I love them dearly. This is not a knock on them at all. I was a very emotional child growing up. I know it's hard to believe, but I was. So I learned early on because my parents didn't know what to do with me. I was so emotional all the time. Well, what ended up happening is a lot of the times they didn't really validate my emotions because they were going like, I don't know, it's fine, it's just fine, that kind of thing. So I learned that I really couldn't be who I really was because that was too much. It's too much for people. And so in my script, I started to learn and write down in the script that I would rehearse in my life of going like, okay, you have to temper yourself. You can't really be yourself because ah, that doesn't play very well. What are the lines in your script in your life? We all have them, and we all rehearse them every single day. Why do we come in here on Sundays? Those of you come in here regularly on Sundays, what are we doing when we come in on Sundays? It's kind of an odd thing to come, stop your day in the middle of your Sunday, which you could just be sleeping or relaxing, and you decide to show up to this space. What are we trying to do? We're trying to look at our script to say, what is really true? And then we're trying to rehearse it. That's why we sing. That's why we look at the Bible. That's why we pray together. That's why we give. Because we are trying to do our best to understand the script and then rehearse it so that when we leave this place, we understand and we have a better knowledge of what it looks like to live fully human in line with design of God. I love this quote by Michael Horton. When he talks about this idea of Sundays and scripts and rehearsals, he says this, 
Even if we are lifelong Christians, we forget why we came to church this Sunday until it all happens again. We come in with our shallow scripts that are formed out of the clippings of our imaginations, the ads and the celebrities of last week, only to be reintroduced to our real script and find ourselves by losing ourselves all over again. It's not merely as we entertain the possibility of being a character in the story or some other purely subjective strategy that this narrative has a dramatic power to reconstitute us. Rather, it is as God the Spirit works on us through the proclamation of the word that we are re-scripted. Our lives, purpose, identities, and hopes are conformed to that new world into which the word and spirit give us new birth instead of the other way around. Instead of our remaking God and his word in terms of our experience and reason, we end up being remade, caught in the action of the divine drama. What we're going to see this morning as we continue to look at the gospel of John, as we've been in it for over a year and a half now, we're coming towards the end, the last two chapters. What we're looking at is the climax of the script, the climax of the story, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. If we don't get this right, none of the other part of the story is going to work. If they don't do the big dance number at the end of Footloose, it does not work. It will not make sense. We need to be aware of the scripts that we are rehearsing. And as we look in John chapter 20 this morning, we're going to see another encounter of the resurrected Jesus. So if you have a Bible, open it up to John chapter 20. If it's not already open, there's some Bibles in the front of the chairs there. If you need one, you can open it on your phone. Follow along on the screen with us. Last week, we got to see the first interaction of this resurrected Jesus in John's account. In John chapter 20, we saw that Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene at the tomb, specifically to her. She is sad, she's emotional, and he meets her in that space says her name, and all of a sudden she realizes that she's in front of Jesus, and he's risen. But she clings to him, holds him, says, I'm never letting you go, basically. And he says, no, actually, you have a mission to go. You need to go back and tell the others that I've risen, that I'm alive. So that's where we're picking up the story, starting in verse 19. Let's read it together and dialogue about it. Again, John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, so the first day we saw with Mary Magdalene, that was the morning, now it's the evening. The first day of the week, the doors were locked where the disciples were fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Let's stop there just for a second. I think this is worth mentioning. And this is interesting. I've, um, my wife and I were in ministry for 16 years um, in an athletic ministry with college and pro athletes, and we specifically did discipleship. That was the main thrust of our time spent. Um, and then I came on staff with a church in 2017 here at Redemption Peoria. I was the executive pastor for that stretch, um, where I would preach maybe once every two months or so. Um, and then we had an interim for six months, and then I moved into this lead pastor position in February, a little over a year ago. So that thrust me into the position to teach more regularly. And it's a new discipline for me to teach in this way, to teach the text versus teaching from a talk, which is what I was familiar with. And so it's been challenging and helpful and good in all the ways. But as we got to the back end of John, I'm going like, Man, what are we going to talk about the last two chapters of John? It's the resurrection. He's alive. John gives us two chapters. What, what are we going to say here? It feels like everybody knows this story. It feels really weird because we're preaching it. And in three weeks, we have Easter, which is really about the resurrection. And we're preaching it before. It's like, wow. Oh, 
And as I've looked at the details of John's account, both in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, I have been blown away. As I've sat with the text and I've looked at the details that John gives us, I'm like, this is crazy. This is so, so good. It's so good. And as we look at John's account of those two chapters, chapter 20 and 21, of the resurrected Jesus, here's what we find. We saw Mary, a character, last week. What kind of emotion was Mary exhibiting in the text? Do you remember? She was sad. She was distraught. Now we're dealing with the disciples who have fear. They're bound up in fear. Next week, we're going to look at Thomas, and he has doubts. The following week, we're going to look at this interaction with Jesus and Peter, where Peter has this shame. You can see it's on him. And then the last week, we'll see. He has this conversation with Peter about John, where he seems to be, Peter seems to be kicking up like this jealousy, like, hey, what about this guy? And Jesus is like, don't worry about him. And so in the midst of what John is giving us, the whole point of the gospel of John is to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that in believing you would have life in his name. And John, through the power of the Spirit, pens these words for us in these two chapters where he talks about sadness and fear and doubt and shame and jealousy, all wrapped in unbelief. Because all of those people have unbelief at some level in their hearts. And you know what changes in all those emotions? They encounter Jesus. They have a real encounter with Jesus, and they're changed. What an unbelievable gift for us to look at this text. Do you have shame? Do you have fear? Do you have doubt? Do you have anxiety in your heart about how to live? Do you have unbelief at some level with what's going on in your life and about God? This is our story. And we get to meet Jesus in the midst of it. He meets us, rather and it's beautiful. Let's see what happens in this interaction as people that live from a resurrection script move from fear to peace to joy to mission. It's really what we're going to see here in the midst of this as John is recording it for us. So again, the, the disciples, the closest followers of Jesus, uh, they are locked in this room uh, the doors are locked because of fear of the Jews. And the other gospel writers tell us, which again, the original audience would have had pre-knowledge of the three gospel accounts. And so they would have been familiar with the other details. And they're going, man, the Jewish leaders, they made up this story that the disciples stole Jesus' body. That's why he's not in the tomb. So you can imagine the disciples caught wind of this. They're going, listen, these leaders are probably coming after us. They're coming after us because they think we actually have Jesus' body, or they're coming after us because maybe they want to kill us. They are afraid, and rightly so. They're afraid. So they go back and they lock the doors. And for some of us, the scripts we've read as we've grown up and had to protect ourselves and bad things have happened to us, we have locked the doors of our life. And we sit back in fear and anxiety and danger because of what's happened to us. Well, Jesus shows up, even though the doors are locked. And that's a beautiful thing, even in our own hearts, even as we've kind of pushed God away at multiple levels of our life, he keeps coming after us, doesn't he? And he comes after the disciples. He shows up and he says, peace be with you. 
Do you know that when you encounter Jesus and you have all those emotions, and specifically fear and maybe anxiety, and not praying away those things of fear and anxiety, a lot of the times, we talked about this months ago, like we want to pray away that fear. We want to pray, God, take it away. Instead of going, let me encounter you. Jesus, would you show up to me and help me in the midst of my fear and anxiety? Jesus shows up and he brings peace to the disciples. He says, peace be with you. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed him his hands and his sides. Then the disciples were glad when they saw it was the Lord. The other gospel accounts think that they, they don't know if he's a ghost. <laughs> Who is this guy? He doesn't look like Jesus to us. We don't recognize him. He says, peace be with you. Is he an angel? And then he shows them his scars in his hands and his sides, and they know they're dealing with Jesus. And because of that, they go from fear to peace to joy. It says they're glad. They have joy in their hearts because everything has been changed for them. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So I love this. Again, the same thing happens with Mary. Mary meets the resurrected Jesus. She, he says her name, Mary, and she realizes it's Jesus. She holds on to him, and he says, don't cling to me. Don't stay here. I actually have work for you to do. Go out and go tell the others what has happened. So the same thing is happening here. They have peace because Jesus is with them. They have joy in their hearts now, but he says, no, let's not just stay here. You have a mission. Just as the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. Verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, you are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgive, forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What is John doing here? Why is he giving us this detail? This is the only detail in the four Gospels of the resurrection in this account where Jesus breathes on them and tells them to receive the Holy Spirit. We don't find it in the other three. And one of the other Gospels we see kind of trying to double down on Jesus being a human. It says he says he's hungry and they give him a piece of fish and he eats it which I always thought was interesting because after you eat fish, like, I don't want you breathing on me. That sounds nasty. Fish breath, breathe on me? Like, it's odd. Like, why does John include this detail in the text? Now, again, we have to put ourselves back in the original reader's shoes, which half of them, he was, he was writing to a Gentile audience, non-Jewish people, but he's also writing to a Jewish audience. And the Jewish audience would know the Old Testament. They would know their Bible. And so when they hear this word God or Jesus breathed on them, what are they connecting it to? If you know your Old Testament like the original audience would have known their Old Testament, they would say, wait a second, this sounds a lot like these other instances in the Old Testament. And John is doing this all the time. We talked about it. He uses this loaded language, even from the very, very beginning. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, what is he doing? He's directly referencing Genesis chapter 1. He's tying Jesus back to the creation narrative. This is another instance of this happening when he says Jesus breathed on them because in Genesis chapter 2, God creates Adam out of dust, out of dirt, and he's not form, he's forming him. And what does God do? The text says he breathes into Adam to give him life. This is the second breath 
Just as God has breathed into humans to give them life, Jesus is breathing into his followers the Holy Spirit to give them spiritual life to go out and be on mission. Another text that would be familiar to the original readers would be Ezekiel chapter 37. We sang about dry bones just a minute ago. In Ezekiel chapter 37, the prophet is going in and he has this vision of this valley of dry bones. There's just bones everywhere, like skeletons everywhere. And he's having this conversation with God. And God says, do you think these bones can come alive? And Ezekiel goes, I don't know. And then Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 5, God says, I will cause breath, it's the same word for spirit, to enter you and you shall live. I think that's why John is using this specific language of Jesus breathing on them. That is the source of life. That is where we get it from. John also uses in G, uh, Acts, or I'm sorry, in John chapter 3 as he has this conversation, Jesus and Nicodemus have this conversation with each other. Do you remember? And he talks about the spirit. How can you be born again? You can't enter back into your womb. That's what Nicodemus says. And Jesus says the spirit moves like the wind, goes where it pleases. This language of wind and breath and spirit are connected with one another. In Acts chapter 2, we see a, a mighty rushing wind comes through the room and the disciples receive the Holy Spirit. This is another encounter. This is a foretaste of the church experiencing God's breath to understand where we get our energy from, where we get our ability to do ministry from. My cousin's friend was in town this last weekend. He's 19. His name's Jaden. And uh, he was just hanging out for us for the weekend. It was great to see him. And uh, we started talking about what we've been watching, what shows we've been watching. We probably talked about Severance. I don't know. But then we talked about, he goes, have you seen the Justice League? So for some of you that don't know, there's the Marvel Universe. This is like comic nerd stuff. Um, and there's a good thing. Uh, like, there's the Marvel Universe, that's Spider-Man, and that's, you know, Iron Man, and Black Panther, Captain America. And then there's the DC Universe. That's the other kind of Pepsi and Coke of the comic version. There's Marvel, and there's DC. DC has Superman, they have Batman, they have Wonder Woman, Green Lantern. And as the success of the Marvel movies were happening, the DC people were like, hey, we want to get on this. Like, we have a unbelievable comic book superhero franchise here. We should start making the movies. So they started making movies and nah, they were like, oh, Marvel's way better. So then they're like, hey, we're going to make the Justice League, which is the counter of the Avengers, basically, of the Marvel universe. And so they say, we're going to get the right guy. So they bring in this director named Zack Snyder and uh, he's well known. And they start the project in 2015-16. And as they start it, Snyder keeps getting rewrites from Warner Brothers, who's producing it, and he's not happy with the rewrites, and he's not sure about it. Well, even in the midst of that happening, a tragedy happens. His daughter ends up dying, and so he decides, I'm, I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. So mid-production, he just leaves. So they bring in this other director, Warner Brothers does, and he just kind of nods his head to all the rewrites and all the things, and they come out with a movie in 2017, and like, it's a flop. Like, nobody really likes it. They're like... This is not right. This is not really good. We had these high expectations, and then this comes out. So the fans started kind of kicking up some dust about wanting 
Zack Snyder to come back to the original picture and kind of remake it and go like, this is what we initially wanted. This is what we were excited about. So after his grief, he finally decides to jump back into the project. And in 2001, they released the, the movie, uh, uh, The Justice League, in HBO Max, and it was called the Director's Cut, the Snyder Cut. This movie is four hours long, super long. Um, we watched it. My son and, and my cousin's kid, I fell asleep on the couch last week because he's like, oh, you got to see it. Because the people that experienced the Justice League in 2017, the theatrical release, they were like, ah, oh, this, is, this is just okay. It's not even really good. But the people that talk about and know the comic book world that talk about the director's cut, they're like, this thing is unbelievable. This is the way it was meant to be. When you have the right director pulling the strings and making the right decisions and having the angles the right way, it changes the whole story. And for some of us in the room, we've been Christians a long time, but we have not been in tune with the Holy Spirit directing our lives. We've been going through the motions, and people look at you and you go, oh, that's kind of like a Justice League Christian, the original one. Like, that's, why would I want that? That's kind of boring and... You don't look any different from anyone else. That's because you are directing your own life. You've made a decision for Jesus. You want his forgiveness of your sins, which you need. You're dead without him. But then you haven't tapped into the source inside of you, the spirit. You haven't been praying. You haven't been asking God to move in you, to breathe in you. You've just been doing life and people around you are looking at you going, why would I want that? And the way you're experiencing the Christian life, you're going, ah, it's okay, I guess. You need a different director. The script of the resurrected Jesus changes everything. It changes all things. My wife and I were talking last week about the sermon. I'm always trying to get feedback from her because she's the most honest person and she's really good at communication and she'll tell me what I need to know. And she goes, you know what? When you talk about the resurrection, something changes in you. When we sing about the resurrection, there's something in you. It doesn't necessarily happen to me, but there's something about the resurrection that in you happens when you believe it and you preach it, and man, it's contagious. Because it's true. Because before this happens, before we get, again, we talked about like if the Gospel of John ends at John 19, we don't have 20 or 21, we don't see the resurrected Jesus, what are we doing? The resurrection should change us. And because of the resurrection, because of the atonement for sin that Jesus paid for on the cross, and now he beats death and he breathes his, his spirit into us, and we can be totally different. We don't have that access before. We have a shadow of it in the Old Testament where we have to bring sacrifices to God. And there's this system. And Jesus is the perfect sacrifice on the cross and it changes the way we get to live forever. So I kind of get fired up about the resurrection because it changes the whole script. It changes how I rehearse my life. And often I go back to those old scripts like you do as well. And I have to be reminded by the Spirit to go, no, 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 that's old. I rewrote that in your life when you let me in. And you get to live differently. And you get to come back because of the power and the grace of the Spirit to go, okay, I want to live differently. 
That's what the disciples are experiencing here as Jesus breathes on them in verse 22. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's a foretaste of what happens in Acts chapter 2 where the church gets to receive the Spirit. Once you make that decision for Jesus, the Spirit indwells you and now lives in you. But we need to tap into that power instead of operating on our own. The way you tap into that is by prayer, by asking God to change you. Saying, God, I need you. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Would you work in and through me? Would you breathe on me? Let's look at verse 23 as we close, because this is worth looking at, because this verse has been misinterpreted quite often since it's been written. Again, Jesus says in verse 22, when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven to them. If you withhold the forgiveness of any, it is withheld. Now, at face value, this reads as kind of like the disciples somehow some magic wand of forgiveness, and they can put it on people or they can take it away from people. Um, I don't think that's what John's doing here. I don't think that's in line with the rest of the script or the biblical story. What I think Jesus is saying to them is before, again, there was a sacrificial system to get right with God. You would have to kill a lamb. There would be blood involved. And now because of what Jesus has done on the cross... Forgiveness is attainable to people. It's attainable to people. And as he's sending them out to tell them the mission, he wants them to be clear that other people can now have forgiveness. It wasn't offered before. Imagine you had cancer. And it's a horrible disease. Some of you in the room have had cancer and you've beat cancer. And others of you, uh, myself personally, have had family members die from cancer. And it's a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. Imagine just for a second that you get diagnosed with cancer. And from some unbelievable circumstances, somebody comes to you and they actually reveal the antidote to your cancer. And they say, if you do this thing, if you take this pill, you will be healed of your cancer. And you're not sure if you can believe it or not, but you've talked to this person. They said, I had cancer and I took this thing and it's gone now. It's gone. And so you go, okay, well, this is like my only shot. I know I have an illness, a terminal illness. And so you decide to take this pill and it heals your cancer. And you're okay now. You don't have it anymore. So now you have the opportunity. Uh, three weeks later, you find out that your neighbor two houses down gets diagnosed with cancer. And now you go, I can tell him the antidote. Like, I have it. I have it. You had some extra, and you want to give it to somebody, but you go, ah, I'm not sure how they'll feel about me saying, hey, I have the answer. Or I don't know how they'll re receive if, if they don't think they have cancer and I tell them they have cancer, that might really bum them out. That might really bother them. You have the antidote, but you don't want to share it. For what reason? For fear? For shame? For anxiety? For uncomfortability? Now, there's a way to share the antidote. You don't go busting through the door and shove it down their mouth. <laughs> Like the rest of the Bible talks about, you have seasons of grace and kindness and you ask good questions, but we have the answer to the problem of sin that gives us freedom, not only in this life, but in the life to come, and we're not sharing it with people. Because why? Maybe we don't really believe it, or maybe it's too uncomfortable for us. If you live by the resurrected script, if this is your script and you, like my daughter, go in every day and rehearse and rehearse and rehearse 
and you learn it, and you rehearse it, and you realize how to be a full human. And God changes you, just like he's changed me, just like he's changed so many of you. You want to share that with other people. You want to say, listen, you don't have to live this way. All your fear, all your anxiety, all your stress, all your shame, all your doubt, all your jealousy, it can be met by an encounter with Jesus. Let me tell you about him. It has changed me. It can change you. And that's what Jesus does in this moment as he's sending out his disciples. Just as the Father has sent me, I am now sending you. I think about that language and those disciples. And what if they were like, I don't really want to go. Like, I appreciate you sending me, but I'm good fishing. I'm good collecting taxes. Like, I, I, I you know. And then I think, what I What's the conversation with God, the Father, and Jesus, and the Spirit, in the midst of the heavens before everything is created? And the Father says, I'm going to send you. you got to think Jesus is like, wait, what? He's not thinking that because he's God. But go like, well, that's uncomfortable. That doesn't sound fun for me. What's in it for me? And the same thing is true with us. As God breathes on us, empowers us with his spirit to love people, to take away our fear, to take away our sadness, to take away our doubt, our shame, our jealousy, and we get to lean into it through dependency, through prayer, through community, and go, let me share this truth with the world. That's our call. When we live resurrected scripts, we have a new perspective and a new purpose. Let's be those types of people. Let's pray. Father, we desperately, desperately need you as we already prayed. So many of us are living from past scripts that we need you to rewrite through the power of your spirit, through the power of your word, through the power of community as we get around each other and we study this to understand what it looks like to be the best versions in our humanity, loving you and loving people. Would you change us? Would you help us with the the scripts that feel like they're tattooed on our skin, that feel like they're written in Sharpie, that we can't get rid of? Your spirit can change us, can wash us, can cleanse us from those things that are not true and replace it for the truth of the gospel. We thank you, Jesus, that you meet us even when we're hiding and fearful and our doors are locked, that you break through those barriers. I pray that you would continue to break through the barriers of our heart and soul right now. Would you meet us in our time of response? And would you show us what it means to be people that believe the resurrection is true? We ask it in your name. Amen.